Hey, I'm Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so hard to keep up with the latest scientific research on child development and figure out whether and how to incorporate it into our own approach to parenting. Here at Your Parenting Mojo, I do the work for you by critically examining strategies and tools related to parenting and child development that are grounded in scientific research and principles of respectful parenting. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free guide called 13 Reasons Why Your Child Won't Listen to You and What to Do About Each One, just head over to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash subscribe. You can also continue the conversation about the show with other listeners in the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. I do hope you'll join us. Welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Today, we're going to look at the topic of implicit bias. Now, I've been thinking for a while about running a series of episodes on the connection between our brains and our bodies, because I've been learning about that and the wisdom that our bodies can hold and wondering, well, how can we learn how to pay more attention to our bodies? And then I started thinking about intuition and I wondered, well, how can we know if we can trust our intuition? What if our intuition is biased? So I started looking at the concept of implicit bias, and it became immediately clear whom I should have to interview, Dr. Mazarin Banerjee. Dr. Banerjee studies thinking and feeling as they unfold in a social context, with a focus on mental systems that operate in implicit or unconscious mode. Since 2002, she's been Richard Clark Cabot Professor of Social Ethics in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, where she was also the chair of the Department of Psychology for four years, while holding two other concurrent appointments. She has been elected fellow of a whole host of extremely impressive societies and was named William James Fellow for a lifetime of significant intellectual contributions to the basic science of psychology by the Association of Psychology Science, an organization of which she also served as president. Along with her colleague, Dr. Anthony Greenwald, she's conducted decades of research on implicit bias and co-authored the book Blindspot, Hidden Biases of Good People. I should also say that there are a lot of issues that we only got a chance to skim over at a fairly high level in this conversation, which I'm recording this introduction afterwards because Dr. Banerjee was quite pressed for time. And I'm planning to release an episode that follows up into these issues and dives into them at a much deeper level soon. So please consider this part one of a two-part conversation with you. All right, let's go ahead and get started with the interview. Welcome, Dr. Banerjee. Thanks so much for being here. Hi there. So I wonder if we can start out by understanding a bit more about what implicit bias is. I hear it all over the place. And can you help us to just define what that is, please? Sure. So implicit bias, quite simply, is a tendency in every human being to favor one individual over another, one social group over another, and to do so without conscious awareness or without the ability to be able to exert conscious control over the judgment that one is making. So let's just break the phrase down into the two words that constitute it, the word implicit and the word bias, okay? Bias, what is it? It's simply for us a deviation from neutrality. It is privileging one option over another, right? If I say I prefer blue to red, I'm biased in favor of blue and uh, not in favor of red, relatively speaking. So that for us, is what a bias is. And implicit just means that that favoring of red over blue or blue over red is something that I'm not even aware of. It's just that when I go into a store, I pick up clothing that is all blue rather than red. That put together tells us that implicit bias is a deviation from neutrality in ways we ourselves would not be happy uh, to see ourselves doing. If it's in the domain of color, who cares whether I prefer uh, blue to red or red to blue. But imagine now that it's not blue and red. Imagine that it is a native born child in the classroom and an immigrant child in the classroom. And even though I, as a teacher, believe very much that both should be treated equally. That is to say, If they do something good, I should reward both equally. If they did something that's bad behavior, I should reprimand them equally. I should encourage both equally to pursue new things in their lives. I should support both of them equally to meet their goals and so on. A deviation from neutrality would mean that I'm doing these things, both the good and bad things, in order to teach a child something, that I'm doing them 
selectively, that I'm doing more of one uh, for one category over another. So that's all biases. And teachers are so well-intentioned, just like parents. Mm-hmm. What they want is the best for all of the kids in their class. And so when we discover that a teacher may not be aware, but is systematically calling on certain people in the classroom or saying, aha, or good idea to some rather than others, then we would say it's implicit. And as you can imagine, teachers by and large are very good people. And so when they are biased, it is almost always without their awareness. Okay. So it's this lack of awareness perspective that's really the key then. That's exactly right. And the reason this is interesting is because if you look in almost any society, but let's just take American society or the Western world or whatever, some large group of people, you will notice that explicit forms of bias have been coming down, at least in what people say on a survey. If you say to a teacher, do you think that native-born children are just inherently smarter than immigrant children? The teacher will likely say, no, I don't believe that that is the case at all. I think all children are talented in all these different ways. So if you measure it explicitly, if you say, tell me, is this immigrant kid, you know, better or worse than this native-born kid, you will not see any evidence of bias. But when you sit in the back of the classroom and you just measure what the teacher is doing, who the teacher looks at, who the teacher says nice things to, who the teacher calls on, and you see that there is a systematic difference, Mm -hmm. then we say we must become interested in this because the child is experiencing these good and bad things the teacher is doing, but the teacher has no awareness. And think about the child. What does the child think is going on? The child might think, I'm bad or I'm good, right? And that's why we should be interested in both kinds of measures, um, what people say to us directly and also what they may not be able to say because they don't think they're that way. Okay, I'm wondering if we can just pull that apart a little bit and we're sort of using teachers as an example, but this could just as well apply to managers or anyone in any situation. I I can understand if a a researcher uh, was to come and say, do you think that native born children have different capabilities than immigrant children? Then I understand the correct thing for me to say in that moment is no, of course not. (laughs) But I may still be thinking that and I may have awareness that I'm thinking that. So I'm, I'm trying to understand the difference between an explicit bias that I know it's not a socially correct thing to say and an implicit bias that I might not be aware of. How can I parse that difference? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. For now, I would say, an explicit bias is something that you know, mm-hmm. even if you don't say it to other people, but you know. So let's say that I believe that boys are better at math than girls are, but I'm not going to say that because I don't want my girl students to hear that or feel bad about that. And so I'm not going to say it, but I think it, and I'm able to consciously put those words together in my mind. Boys are better at math than girls. I know that. As long as that is the case, we would say it's consciously accessible to you. Your mind is capable of saying A is better than B or whatever, and to do that to yourself at least. What makes it implicit is when you say boys and girls are equally good at math. I believe it. You never say to yourself, boys are better at math than girls. But if we look at some other aspects of your behavior, who you spend more time teaching a difficult math problem to, uh, et cetera, then we would say it's obviously okay. implicit. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Thank you for helping us to understand that distinction. And so then I wonder if we can go from there into the implicit association test, which is sure. something you've spent a bit of time working on over the years. <laughs> can you tell us uh, what that is and how does that measure implicit bias? Yeah. So as you can imagine, your listeners and you will easily see what the problem is. A person, if asked, genuinely and truly says, I have no bias. Mm -hmm. And when you measure their judgments and actions in some way, you're seeing a systematic effect. How do you measure that Mm -hmm. when the person themselves is saying no? In psychology, we've relied for over 100 years on what we call explicit measures. If you want to know something about what a person is thinking, ask them, how stressed are you feeling? (laughs) Okay. Well, sometimes maybe I can tell you that I'm feeling stressed, but there are lots of studies where people like me say that they're not stressed at all, Mm -hmm. and you'll see me breaking out into hives or something, which is a response to the stress. 
Now you have to have a measure of those hives. You have to be able to measure skin complexion, you know, when one is stressed and not stressed and say whether the person knows it or not, there is some physical response that we can measure. What can we do when the response we are looking for is locked up between our ears in a box that is not easy to penetrate? Mm. So the first thing to do is to just imagine the difficulty of trying to even track anything implicit. And the measure that you mentioned, the one that we are most familiar with and the one that I believe today is the dominant measure of implicit uh, cognition in the science as a whole, is the implicit association test. And I'm one of three co-developers of that test. The test has a very simple assumption that underlies it. The assumption is that when two things in our experience have come to go together repeatedly, they're joined in time and in space, let's say, that they become one for us. If when I see bread, there is usually a bowl of butter, bread and butter come to be associated. When I think bread, butter comes to mind quick, more quickly than some random word like water or couch or something like that. So that's very easy to understand. And neuroscientists actually, in order to teach people how neurons in our brain fire after having learned something, they teach it to us by the phrase, if it fires together, it wires together. Okay? And we use that when we teach how learning uh, occurs. By firing together, it means in the same moment, if neurons for bread and butter are becoming activated, your brain learns that there's something about these that go together. And that's how we learn everything. We learn, you know, that mother and father are a unit like bread and butter. But we also know certain experiences we have in the presence of something. When I see flowers, I feel happy. So good and flowers becomes associated. Flowers almost become synonymous with good, even though the words that we might use to capture goodness have nothing to do with flowers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not just words like beautiful or peace or joy, but if we use words like, you know, angel or satisfied or whatever that have no semantic relationship to flowers, those words should become more easily accessible in the presence of flowers because our experience has made them repeatedly be associated. Unlike insects. When we think of an insect, we think yucky. I mean, unless I you're a five-year-old boy, yes. <laughs> I will put them aside for a moment uh, and say that, yes, uh, that may happen. But even young boys, when they take our test, if it's flower or insect, they have learned that in our culture, flowers are good and insects are bad. So all we've done is made a test that measures the strength of association between insects and bad and good, flowers and bad and good. Okay? That's what the test is. And now we can begin to go beyond the test by keeping the test logic identical. If I have you look at flowers on a computer screen and press a key, left key when you see flowers and the right key when you see insects, very easy for you to do that. Now I'm gonna say, okay, not just flowers and insects, but words are gonna pop up on the screen. Words like love and peace and joy, good words, or bad words like devil and bomb and war and things like that. And your job is to use the same key to say flower or good words, and the same key now, a different, but uh, the same key when you identify an insect as having appeared on the screen or a bad word as having appeared on the screen. Now, if flower and good have truly become one in our minds, this should be a very easy task. Left key for flowers, left key for good, uh, right key for insect, right key for bad, right? That's easy. But now let's switch. This is the moment in the test when people groan because I'm saying to them, left key for flower and left key for bad things, right key for insect and right key for good things and they can't do it. By can't do it, I mean they can, but it takes them a whole lot longer to do this, and they make many more mistakes when they do this. I show this bias, you show this bias. The, you know, even entomologists who study insects <laughs> and love them show it, but to a lesser extent than we do. So yeah. they have acquired the cultural thumbprint that says insects are not as good as flowers, but because they love insects and they work with them, mm -hmm. they show a lower anti-insect bias than oh, we that's do. that's fascinating. <laughs> okay. So now, the logic of the test should be very clear to people, 
And they will mostly agree, in fact, everybody will agree that this is a decent measure of whether we like flowers or insects. And when the data come back and tell you, you have a strong preference for flowers over insects, people nod their head and say, yes, uh, I do. There's no quarrel with the test. The quarrel with the test emerges when we replace insect and flower with black and white faces, Asian and white faces, fat and thin people, people who are Native Americans and European Americans. And sometimes when we even change the good and bad words to be things like bad and good things, like weapons and musical instruments or something like that, is it easier for me to associate you know, certain groups with bad things and certain groups with good things? And the startling result is that for people who have and I would say genuinely have no explicit bias. Now, I can't say what your explicit bias is because you may think that you think that, you know, male is better than female, but you may not be willing to tell me. But I'll take myself. I know that explicitly, I do not believe that black is bad and white is good. I know that for sure because it's me and I can tell myself the truth about what I consciously think. And yet for people like me who seem to have no explicit bias, this test throws us a curveball because it demonstrates that people like me are not able to associate good with black as easily as we can associate it with white. And when that happens, it's troubling to us. It's troubling because it doesn't feel like the test is telling us anything true about ourselves. I don't blame people who say, what a stupid test, it's just telling me, you know, it's just all complete lies. Mm -hmm. I felt the same way when I first took the test. I thought, what's wrong with this test? Obviously, I'm the great Mazarin. I'm not biased. So if the test is telling me I am, something's wrong with the test. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a few minutes later, I came to my senses and I realized it's not the test that's the problem. It's my head that's the problem. <laughs> I have accumulated all this learning. Two things have gone together. It fired together. It wired together. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. And I think there's a lot of different pieces to come up from that that we're going to get to in due time as we go through the conversation. But I'm wondering if maybe we can start with, okay, where does this come from? Because in preparation for this interview, you sent me an epic paper that you <laughs> had uh, written with one of your uh, grad students. And the reference list alone was enough to make me weep <laughs> when I saw it and realized I was probably going to need to read most of those. Which paper was that? The one with Dr. Charlesworth on, uh, yeah, I hope I'm remembering her her name it's, right. Yeah, yeah, no, Charlesworth is right, yes. but she's written too many papers. Yes, so. yeah, you've written a lot with her, but the idea of the the assessment of where implicit beliefs and attitudes about gender and race and language come from. So the the, oh, the language paper, yeah, the, the uh-huh, okay, I got it. Yeah, sort of the overview of what does the research say about where mm-hmm. all of this comes from in all of these different domains of gender, mm-hmm. race, language, and age, and so on. So yeah. I wonder if you can walk us through what we know about where these implicit biases come from. Yeah. So whenever we talk about where does something come from, in this domain, you must always think about it in two buckets. The data that we know, female is nice, male is strong, whatever those beliefs might be, they're obviously coming from somewhere, right? And that's usually outside of the human in some sense. First, when you're born into the world, you don't know that, uh, you know in a few days that mom is nicer than dad because you've been attached to mom. And infants, by the way, do know this very, very quickly. That is by no, they prefer other females if their primary caregiver is female. They prefer other males if their primary caregiver is male. So they're clearly learning that. But the very fact that they're learning that female is good or male is good, depending on their experience, tells us that those experiences are coming to them from the outside, but there is a machine inside. That's the second bucket. It's not like it takes a long while for these things to get learned. There is a learning machine. Our brain is, it's like a sponge for anything new that comes to be paired with each other. We're seeking those associations. And when we see them, we form immediate hypotheses. Oh, a person who looks like this is a nice person. They feed me, they take care of me, they feel cuddly and warm, they stroke my cheek. 
and some other group that has never done anything bad to you, but just hasn't done anything good, is not associated with that, right? So, so when we think about where this comes from, the specific content, female is soft and nice, feeds me, etc. Male is strong, you know, can carry large objects, whatever those are, those are obviously being learned. It is not something that the brain knows on day one. But the thing to focus on is that it's learning it extremely fast. So fast that, as I said, within the first you know, two months of life, babies are showing preferences for dark-skinned people if their caregivers are dark-skinned and for light-skinned people if their caregivers are light-skinned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so it, there's sort of a, a shift that's happening in there, and I want to make sure that we, we see it happening. There's In the very early days, there's a noticing, which researchers are measuring through things like looking studies, like how long does a child look at one person versus another person, one picture versus another picture. Yeah, I don't think looking is all any as really anything like just looking. Looking almost immediately is going to also be reflecting either a preference mm-hmm. or that it's something startling and unique. And I better look at it because this doesn't sound like the usual thing. So looking time is telling us more than just here are two things and I'm going to look at one over the other. Yeah. Okay. And that's sort of linked to a, a, the categorization that's happening, right? That one particular person has these features and here's another person that has these features. And this person brings me milk and stuff that I like. <laughs> and this person looks sort of like this person. And so we start to lump these together. Is that right? That that's how the categories form. Yeah. When I say that babies very early start to show a preference for others who share the gender of their caretaker, that's exactly what's happening. If one woman is good to you, your brain apparently thinks that's more than enough data, and you will generalize from that to other women. And if you have a mother and a grandmother, it's over. Now all women are going to be good, right? (laughs) Because two of them have already shown that they did not harm you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yes. So I think the question of categorization and then forming liking for one and the other is too complicated to get into because there are many different views about all of this. But the important thing is, yes, very early babies can put things into groupings Mm -hmm. and very quickly. And this is the interesting part. The fact that they can see that things are different is not so surprising. Mm -hmm. But what is surprising is how quickly beliefs and affect come to be associated with that, how quickly things become good and bad that's the part that I would be interested in. Mm, Yeah. And so why do we do that? Like, why does the good and bad thing happen? Where does the preferences part come from? Because it's so adaptive. For babies that didn't do this, they would just die. Mm. I mean, imagine that a baby fails to distinguish between people who take care of them and people who harm them. Mm -hmm. A baby like that would not survive a day because they would approach people who are likely to harm them. Mm -hmm. So for a baby to not go in the direction of people who look unfamiliar is a very protective mechanism. Mm -hmm. For the baby to learn very quickly that once somebody has not harmed me, others like that person are not likely to harm me is a decent hypothesis. It will pan out in their little universe. Mm -hmm. So that's where it comes from. It's not for nothing that they're doing it. They're not stupid, right? this, This is how humans evolved. Humans who did not have the capability to distinguish between categories and assign a positive or negative value to those would have died out okay. in our evolutionary history. They didn't survive long enough to have their own children so that there would be amongst us people who don't make those distinctions. This was so important that it is now a basic human quality because okay. only those survive. Yeah. And it happens across categories like gender and race and language and age. And th- those were some of the ones that you covered in your paper. And tables and chairs and cups and saucers and, <laughs> and oranges and apples and everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I was curious to see that boys undergo a shift, girls undergo less of a shift as, as they get a little bit older and go from and start to see female with good and male with bad on a version of the implicit association test that's designed for children. And Mm -hmm. so instead of preferring their own group, because I think the tendency is to prefer own group and to, for boys to say, oh, boys are better than girls and girls say, well, girls are better than boys. And then over time it becomes sort of a a female preference. What's behind that? Yeah. You're asking a really important question. So let me just back up a little bit and Mm -hmm. say, you're exactly right. 
in-group preference we see in some ways is ubiquitous. Yeah. You can go anywhere in the world and you won't be surprised when you see that people like their own group better than they like other groups. Okay? If it's something like the Red Sox and the Yankees, it's very explicit. I can actually scream all kinds of epithets about the Yankees. Yeah. It's considered socially completely okay. I, I right? enjoyed the research paper on that particular yeah. exactly. <laughs> I can wear a t-shirt that says the Yankees suck. And even though they don't, and they're far better than the Red Sox in many ways, it is okay for me to do that. So in-group preference, starting with something as clear and as socially acceptable as commitment to a, a sports team and hating the rival team, uh, starting with that and going down to other kinds of groups, American. Uh, is American better than European? For Americans, Americans are better. And for Europeans, Europeans are better. So let's just start with the assumption that in the psychological research literature, this has been shown thousands and thousands of times in every possible way, that in-group preference is strong and ubiquitous. When you find that not being the case, you have to get interested as a scientist. Mm -hmm. How can it be that something as pervasive is failing to appear? Mm -hmm. And we see it more on the IAT, on the implicit test. So on the explicit test, if you ask Black people, which group do you like more, white or Black? They will say with lots of passion, we, pref we think Black is better than white. Mm -hmm. When you ask white people, which group is better, white or Black? They will say their own group is better, but a little more modestly because they know their history. Mm -hmm. They know that it's not so cool for them to say white is better than Black. Okay, So they will, they will still say it, but in a much more modulated way than African-Americans will. So that's what they say. Now let's go to the IAT. And we'll use both examples, race and gender here. On the IAT, white people show strong preference for white over black. And young children, six-year-olds and even younger, we now know, show that same preference. So they've already learned by the time they're four, we know it can be seen on lots of complicated tests that they prefer just like the adults of their group. So white adults and white kids look the same to each other. They reflect each other and they show clear in-group preference, much stronger in-group preference than they might say on a scale if you ask them the question, which group do you prefer and so on. Now let's go to black Americans. If the world were fair and equal and non-hierarchical, Black Americans should. If 70% or 75% of white Americans show white preference, then 75% of Black Americans should show Black preference. And if that's steam, then we would say this is symmetric, opposite but symmetric, right? But that's not the case. 40% of Black Americans show in-group preference, 40% show out-group preference, that is to say they prefer white to black, and 20% are neutral. When you collapse the data for black Americans, you see a graph where you see roughly half the people on the side of white preference and the other half on the side of black preference. And young black children, six years of age, will show the same result. Mm -hmm. They have learned. They have learned. This is to me one of the morally difficult uh, results, yeah. that by that age, a black child knows enough that even though they might say, I like black kids, they do not show that preference on the IAT. Mm -hmm. So what is the IAT and the value of implicit measures is that they are capturing the thumbprint of the culture on our brain, not we, what we think we ought to say. Mm -hmm. And now you start to see the same thing with gender, but in a way that will perplex people. In the world, there was this wrong belief that because women are oppressed because women have been subjugated by men, because women have had many fewer rights than men, that women will be seen as bad. Well, women are not respected or seen as strong or competent, but they are loved because a very defining meaning of female is mother. In every culture, the basic meaning of female is somebody who's nice, will cook for you, will hug you, is warm, smells good. All of those things are associated with mother. So if you give people an IAT, male, female, good, bad, girls will show in-group preference, just like it's supposed to be. Girls will like girls. But young boys 
who've learned that mother is wonderful and nice, they will show a lower preference for female, but they won't show, just like black people don't show a strong preference for black over white, boys won't show as strong a preference for male over female because they're members of that group. So they like the group male, but they too have learned that in our culture of the two groups, male and female, the good one is mother, mm. okay? Not necessarily the competent one, the strong one, the one who brings in the money, the one who you know is going to be able to kill off the enemy for us, all of that, not that. So what you now see is that it is silly for us to assume that any particular group is all good or all bad. It depends in which category you're looking. There's a fundamental warmth that we might feel towards some people over others. And that's one dimension on which we like or dislike certain groups. But as Susan Fisk, uh, a psychologist has shown, there is a second variable that does not run parallel. It runs almost in opposition to the warmth one, the goodness or loved, but seem to be not so strong. Or you could be seen to be strong like father, like CEO, like feminist women. These groups are seen as strong, but not necessarily nice. Okay? Mm. So that's what you see. And the amazing thing is, that what we see in adults, we're seeing in young children. And that's the important message here, that a lot of parents struggle with this. I have had numerous parents write me, email, tell me, please don't tell anybody this, but you know, my child said something, uh, something terrible mm -hmm. racially. And I have no idea how they could have gotten that because it's never said in our home. It's never said in the school that they go to. How did this happen? And I say to them that it's because they have a very impressive view of their own influence on their child. <laughs> their child is influenced by what it sees in the world. And if they go to a school where there are black and white kids and the black kids, you know, have a lunchbox that is more beaten up than the white kids lunchbox, that might be enough to say that's not as nice as this other nice shiny thing. And that's all it would take to figure all this out. Okay. And so two things to pick up on in that. Firstly, the implications for black children of, and even black adults of this sort of two humped <laughs> curve, as it were, with half of the people preferring the out group and with all of the messages that our culture sends about the out group's superiority in this case, what implications does that have for the psychological health of the people who are in this group? So I'll tell you two things, and they will, I hope, both be interesting. The first thing is that as soon as you combine what I just told you about in-group and out-group preference, that in-group preference is robust and strong in dominant group members, mm -hmm. but it's not present in members that are minority groups or disadvantaged groups. We begin with that result, and then we can actually make the effects even worse by saying they're not even the same size statistically in every culture. If white Americans are about 60% of the population, but black Americans are only 10%, just count up, just do simple math. How many good things is a white person likely to get being thrown towards them in a given day? Oh, 60% of their population are other people like them who show preference for them and their group. African-Americans, even if they showed strong preference for their own kind, would only have that be available in the 10% in that group. So statistically, it makes the result worse, even worse, right? So I think that this is a battle that has to be fought inside of each person. What am I to do? I love myself. I want to love myself. I want to love my home and my people and my thing. But I know that they aren't good. The result that I will give you next is a very shocking result. When you measure self-esteem, how much do you love yourself? And even when you use measures that are implicit, associate good things to yourself, we find that African-Americans have the highest self-esteem in our culture, mm -hmm. followed by white, and the lowest is in Asians, okay? Mm -hmm. So how does this happen? How does a group that is discriminated have the highest level of love for self in some ways? And I think it's because black kids all the way to black adulthood are constantly being tested. Self-love is not something that can be set aside. We love ourselves. We have to protect ourselves. 
that is so powerful that Black Americans have to work harder. This is my conjecture, that the reason they show high self-esteem is because they don't have the luxury of deriving it from their social group. White Americans can feel good because other white people's achievements are theirs. Black Americans have much less of that to lean on. And so it has to be done based on yourself. I have to be the good one. I'm going to have to do the good thing. And I think that it is this kind of constant mental work that goes on to make sure that the self is protected, the self is seen as good, that leads to an almost better developed self-love that in African-Americans is coming from the hard work they have to do to make sure that the goodness they associate with themselves is coming from their own performance, from their own being good or what that might mean, because it's not going to come from just, you know, having it showered on you by others in your group or by even having your own group members show it to you. But this is a very complicated uh, story. But the result is not the result that black Americans. So this is a contradictory result because we used to think that, you know, if your group is discriminated, you will have We even had a word for it. We called it, you know, self-hating X, we would say. Well, that's it's not so simple. Psychologically, we should just be aware that love of self is so primary that we will find a way to love ourselves. And at the even at the expense, uh, even when we know that the group we belong to is not so good, culturally speaking. Okay, then that sheds sort of an additional layer on the next thing that I wanted to follow up on, which was when you said that parents come to you and say, uh, you know, my child said something inappropriate and where did this come from? And you said, well, this is sort of the culture exerting its thumbprint on your child's mind. Of course, there are also many studies showing that uh, children at very young ages, if a researcher asks them, presents them with a picture of a black baby and a white baby, a a doll or or an actual child picture, then both of those black and white children who are the study participants will say, oh yeah, the white baby's nicer, the white baby's cleaner, the white baby's better in some way. And so how can we know that these results are from implicit biases rather than explicit biases that the child hasn't yet learned that society says that they need to cover up because it's not socially acceptable to say this? Yeah. So in our very first study that we did using an implicit measure, it was done with Andy Barron, who is a professor now at University of British Columbia, we were the first to just try an IAT with young children. Mm -hmm. And so we first asked six-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and adults to just tell us, you know, here are two people, which one do you like? Okay. Six-year-olds are the most honest. White six-year-olds, 90% of them tell us, I like the white one better than the black one. By 10, they have started to learn that that may not be so cool to say. So they still show fairly decent in-group preference when they are asked, but explicitly they're not as likely to say the same. And when you ask adults, you see no bias at all because they say half the time white is good and half the time black is good. And that's a good measure of how civilized these adults are uh, at one level, right? At least explicitly, I'm gonna take them at face value. They're saying my values are such that I prefer both equally. When you look at the IAT data, of course, there are no such differences. Six-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and adults all show strong in-group preference, right? So kids are, in fact, honest. They will tell us what they think. And in fact, young Black children are being honest when they say the white doll is better because they know that in their culture, that's the case. There is one videotape of, that's been made of the Clark and Clark doll study, which is the one you bring up, originally done in the 1930s by Kenneth and Mamie Clark, uh, a study that was cited in the important legal decision, Brown v. Board of Education, and that's the original doll studies. But somebody did a version of it, not in a systematic way as the Spences had done, but just sort of videotaping black kids uh, as they're shown black doll, white doll, and they pick the white doll when they're asked which one is good. The kicker is when the experimenter then says, which one is more like you? And you can see a child's face almost turn adult-like in its demonstration of conflict mm-hmm. when very slowly and hesitantly points to the black doll to say, that's more like me. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that 
yes, they know that. And at that age, you know, who knows what it's doing to self-esteem. What we do know is that exactly that process must be working its way all over the place as they grow older so that by the time they're reasonably old, they've learned that I am good, my group is not good. And they've figured out a way to derive self-esteem. But this is not studied very well, so I don't want to go too far into it. What I can tell you that's been well studied is that Black people show fairly high self-esteem. That we know. And it's a puzzle as to how is it possible, given our simplistic belief that people who belong to disadvantaged groups will dislike themselves and so on. It's not so simple. We can't say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then <laughs> then we, of course, come to the issue of, well, what, if anything, can we do to potentially prevent implicit biases from developing? And I'm just thinking to the study that you uh, just published this year, <laughs> again, Dr. Charlesworth, on the massive study of gender stereotypes in natural language. I mean, this is enormous in scope. It's millions of words of assessment that would never have been possible to do <laughs> before, before computers that could, uh, could analyze such high volumes of data. And so when we think about the findings from that study, which are that words associated with gender are everywhere <laughs> in natural language interactions, in movies, in everything that we interact with our, with our children. What can we do when all of this stuff is so baked into our culture to potentially prevent implicit biases from developing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's start with the answer to the parents who say, I never say to my child anything that's gender stereotypic. Uh, I've known parents who will doctor their children's books to put breasts on truck drivers so that their children don't learn a stereotype. And still, the kid somehow seems to know the right answer, uh, that truck drivers don't have breasts. Uh, That, let's start with that. On the one hand, the parent says that. And then let's look at just parent-child conversations. So in the work with Tessa Charlesworth, one data set that we used to look at this using this technique called word embeddings, which words go with which other words, which words are semantically more connected. If I say to you, kitchen mitt and mother are going to be more associated than kitchen mitt and father, you would have no trouble understanding that that might happen. If I say to you, baseball mitt and father are more associated than baseball mitt and mother, you would not be surprised. That's what the data would show, that in our language, when kitchen mitt appears, it's usually with she, mother, etc. When baseball mitt appears, it's more with pronouns and names that are male. Mm-hmm. What parents are telling us is that we don't explicitly say girls are you know, not competent and boys are competent, but parents need not say that, right? If in our culture, a person who's working on a car in their garage is somehow culturally seen as more valuable than stirring soup on a pot in a kitchen, and mother and kitchen are associated and father and garage and cars are, then automatically children are learning that fathers are better than mothers because what fathers do, the work they do, is better than the work mothers do. Mothers are nicer than fathers, but mother's work is not so good. So when you look for stereotypes of associations to, in our culture, things lower on the hierarchy, you know, helping and following rather than building and leading, you see that in the conversations parents and children are having, so this is the brilliance of the data set Tessa worked with, she has one data set of just parents and children talking Mm -hmm. in the course of normal life. We know the age of the child, uh, the gender of the child. Um, We know a few things, but not much else because we only have audio recordings. Mm -hmm. So we subject these audio recordings to this analysis and we find that the evidence for use of gender stereotypes in both parents' language and the child's language is just as robust as it is in TV shows and in uh, music or in encyclopedias or in books of fiction or uh, nonfiction books or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's the important data. Stereotypes in the language when we're speaking are robust. They're seen equally across many different language corpora, including parent-child conversations. And I think for your parents, this should be uh, an interesting idea that they're right when they say, I never say that girls can't work on a car. No, they never said that. 
but in their life, they're demonstrating that by having the male and the family do that and the female not do it. Yes. So they don't ever have to say it. It's seen in the behavior of these individuals. And that's how children pick it up because it would be silly not to be a good learning machine that's trying to learn what goes with what. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, it seems to have so many links to patriarchy as well. And the idea that they, you, you said helping and following are not good and <laughs> creating and, and leading are good. And, and these are stereotypically yeah. male traits, and, stereotypically female traits. Right. So older feminists often argued that, you know, we got to get women into these high positions so that they will be associated with all those values of, you know, respected work and so on. And I think a newer breed of feminists might say, no, we have to make sure that housework becomes seen as important. That, you know, in cultures where it is paid work or whatever, that's a way of a culture signaling that it really believes that the work mothers do is just as important. In fact, more important because um, there there are the schools, I'm told, in Denmark where to just send your child to school, you would be paid, you know, 700 something a month. And that's saying, you know, we care enough about protecting mother's time and sending kids properly to school that we're going to pay people to do that. Until that happens, I don't think, and that's why people are perplexed. Why is it that explicitly nobody really believes in gender stereotypes anymore? But when we look at the world and who's where and how much money people make and so on, it still seems to be there. And the answer today is, yeah, because it's there. Uh, it's not. It's just not something we say. Yeah, it's okay. mostly something we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, it seems to me that the trick here, if there's a trick, is to firstly have the conversations with your child about the value of these different professions and roles and careers, and then secondly, is taking on non-traditional roles and responsibilities to the extent that you want to do that. Yeah. So Tessa's tests, we, the ones we analyzed, are twofold. We take a gender test where we measure how strongly do we associate male and female with the categories of career or work-related things, and then home, family-related things. It's a robust relationship. You know, many, many people, the vast majority, show an association between male and career, female and home, including women, at the same level as men do. So men and women do not differ in this bias. Women, just as much as men, if not a little bit more, associate female with home and male with career. But in the 10-year period that we've looked at, roughly 2007 to 2016, we see that this bias is coming down as a function of time, but also a function of age of the child. And that's because that is the world, right? I'm an old person, so I learned what those are, but my world today is different than my world in the late 50s. And so I am changing. But a kid who was born only 10 years ago begins with a world that is already very different than the 1950s, and they're changing. So what's great about Tessa's data is that she doesn't just look at absolute levels of bias. She looks at change over time. Mm -hmm. And even in attitudes towards gay people, everybody's changing, as it turns out. We're all becoming less and less anti-gay. Conservatives and liberals men and women, older people and young people, the coasts, the middle, rich, poor, educated, less educated, everybody is becoming less Mm anti-gay. But two groups are becoming anti-gay faster than everybody else, and that's young people and people who identify as liberal. Those two are almost already close to neutrality. When we talked about bias, we said a bias is a deviation from neutrality. Mm -hmm. If you like black and white equally, or if you like gay and straight equally, your IAT score would be zero Mm -hmm. because whatever bias you're showing here, you're showing there. And when you subtract one from the other, what's left is zero, which means there's equality in whatever you feel, it's equal. And what we're seeing is that zero point is being reached for today already by young people and by liberals, they're not showing an anti-gay bias. So Mm. those data make us very hopeful. We just have to figure out a way of bottling whatever is going on with sexuality and then see if it can be applied to changes in other ways that are not changing as fast. So race is not changing anywhere as fast. And age bias, your older parents, grandparents might be interested, although it's a sad result, that one of the most robust biases that we've detected is an anti-elderly bias. In elderly people show this bias to the same extent as young people do. Mm-hmm. 
that's how strong it is in just about every culture. Even though cultures do vary in how much age bias they show, every culture is in that direction of elderly, bad, young, and good. Yeah, and that's not changing over time. And we have to ask why, you know? And I have a feeling that, I mean, I can give many, it's a very complicated set of answers, which are all hypotheses at this time, but I think we're not working on that bias. No. Our culture cares about race. We talk about it. We argue about it. We get into fits about it. We talk about sexuality. We pass laws. You know, we do things. But on age bias or disability bias or body weight bias, Mm -hmm. those three are not changing at all. In fact, body weight bias, a a liking for thin over fat, is actually getting worse Mm -hmm. uh, over the same 10-year period, um, not better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so some good progress and still a lot of work to do as well. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. I'm so grateful. I know how busy you are. And uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to read papers before they are publicly available and get a preview into what's coming and, and that you were so generous here with your time today. Thank you for doing what you do. Uh, I think this sort of translation is so necessary and so few people do it and so few people do it as well as you. So thank yeah. you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And so listeners can find uh, links to all of the references, and there are many of them to the studies we've discussed, as well as the background reading that I did. And also the book that Dr. Banerjee co-authored with Dr. Anthony Greenwald, which is called Blind Spot: The Hidden Biases of Good People. All of that can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash implicit bias. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Don't forget to subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com to receive new episode notifications and the free guide to seven parenting myths that we can leave behind. And join the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group for more respectful research-based ideas to help kids thrive and make parenting easier for you. I'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.